The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And what you see here is the administration starting to say that cyber espionage, if it is of a type that impacts thousands of private sector organizations and and creates public safety concerns and requires private sector victims to to spend millions of dollars to, to mitigate, that is not legitimate statecraft activity. And, and what I would hope to see is that uh, as we respond to more operations from, from the Russian government or elsewhere, that that kind of norm be fleshed out so that there's a better sense of, of what is acceptable statecraft versus not. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, 2021. The Biden administration has now responded to two major cyber attacks, one from Russia, the solar winds attack, and the other from China, the so-called Hafnium Microsoft Exchange Server attack. In the last few weeks, Lawfare has run really interesting articles on both of these incidents, a lengthy piece from Dmitry Alperovich and a piece from Alex Iftemy, former Justice Department official and a lawyer at Morrison & Foster. They both joined me in the Jungle Studio to discuss the Biden administration's response to the attacks. Were they appropriate, both in absolute terms and in relation to each other? Do they send the right messages to the countries in question? Do they go far enough? And what more do we want to see? It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, Alperovich and Iftimi, Talk response to Russia and China. Dimitri, get us started. When you and I last talked, you had a disruptive theory of these two hacks the Solar Winds hack by the Russians and the Microsoft Exchange Server hack by the Chinese, in which you thought the attention to one was getting undue attention relative to the other. And uh, you made a series of recommendations as to how the Biden administration should respond to them. So now we have the Biden administration's response to both of them. And I'm interested for your sort of after action report. So bring us up to speed. First of all, for those who did not hear the last podcast, what was your concern and how do you evaluate the Biden administration's response? Yeah, thanks for having me again, Ben. 
So in short, I, I continue to believe that the solar winds or holiday bay operation, as I've called it, has been a very carefully planned and executed, very tailored intelligence collection operation against government entities of the sort that uh, the U.S. government uh, would be proud of conducting against our own adversaries. The fact that the, they limited the impact to most of the targets, so even though they were able to cast a very wide net uh, with the updates to, to SolarWinds package that was downloaded by tens of thousands of organizations, they voluntarily disabled their access to 99% of the victims, permanently disabled it, did not do anything damaging inside those organizations, and focus their efforts on legitimate espionage targets like, like government agencies or private sector organizations like some uh, IT and security companies that they could use for follow-on supply chain hacks. Compare, compare that to the exchange server hacks by the Chinese, where it was completely indiscriminate. Um, they compromised virtually every exchange server on the planet, not located in China, and not just compromised it, but left the door open to the network by installing these web shells that were often not password protected or had default passwords on them, which uh, basically allowed anyone, in this particular case that we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, the, the U.S. government to access them. Um, of course, the U.S. government did it for, for a legitimate reason of, of limited damage, but other criminals, criminal groups and nation states could have used them for much more disruptive and destructive purposes. And in fact, we did see ransomware operations against victims um, that had these vulnerable exchange servers that the Chinese essentially let in. So as a result, if you, if you look at the response, I think the U.S. government action on the exchange service side uh, has been very good. In fact, exceptionally creative and hopefully a sign of more things to come in terms of an aggressive posture that they can take against the adversaries, both nation states and criminals, to limit uh, impact to victims. I still think that we should um, hammer the Chinese for this action uh, because it was so indiscriminate and dangerous. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing you know, sanctions, perhaps, and, and maybe even other measures against China by the Biden administration. I, I hope they do take that step. But when I look at the response to the Russia case, I think it was muddled at best. Um, the fact of the matter is that the sanctions that they did institute uh, against the Russians were not just instituted for the SolarWinds hack. It was a whole slew of things that they put together uh, in terms of laundry list of grievances, including targeting dissidents and uh, engaging in all sorts of nefarious activities. The people that were that were sanctioned, some of them had been sanctioned previously. So it's not clear to me that sanctioning someone multiple times for, for various acts um, does anything to improve deterrence. And were generally dismissed by Russia as, uh, as ineffective and, and inconsequential. So I think if, if the goal was to send a strong message to Russia, I don't think it succeeded. Also, the, the idea that you're going to respond not just for one very specific thing, but you're going to list a whole slew of nefarious activities that the Russians have engaged in over the last several years as, as, as your grievances that you're responding to also doesn't strike me as a very effective approach because it just sends a message to Putin that uh, the U.S. objects to everything that he's doing. And of course, he's not going to change his uh, entire set of behaviors. Um, so if, if we wanted to really object to something in, in a strong fashion, we should have picked one or two things that are so egregious that we cannot tolerate them and really institute very strong sanctions in response to that activity. And of course, we didn't either. All right. So Alex, you wrote a 
really excellent piece last week on the Justice Department's action with respect to remediating the Microsoft Exchange server hack, which uh, actually follows in a very interesting way from some of the stuff that Dimitri and I talked about last time, that is using the access that the Chinese had opened up to get back into those computers and and close things, which uh, we had talked about as a step that perhaps one should demand from the Chinese. But the FBI kind of went ahead and did it itself under a court order. So walk us through how the government gets authority to break into a whole lot of compromised computers and fix them. Ben, good to be with you and, and happy to do that. Let me actually just start by saying, uh, in, in response to one of the things D- Dimitri said, I, I I agree that the Hafnium hacking campaign, uh, which was a, a brazen hack everything type campaign to to get into everyone's systems, is is on a different scale from from the Solar Winds compromise campaign. And I expect, by the way, that you'll see. Uh, more action from 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 the U.S. government to respond to the Hafnium campaign, in addition to this law enforcement operation along the lines that you saw to the SolarWinds campaign, including sanctions, potential criminal charges, diplomatic demarches, and and things like that. That said, I, I don't think that the SolarWinds campaign merited no response at all, and I, I think it made sense for the government to respond there. And they seem to be walking a a narrow line to be able to, to essentially say that cyber espionage, which which of course happens and nation states conduct with some frequency, that, that that shouldn't include operations that impact thousands of private sector organizations that create a public safety concern and essentially require the private sector victims to spend millions of dollars to to mitigate. I'm, I'm quite confident that most of the victims who were uh, affected by that campaign won't take too much comfort in knowing that the Russians disabled their, their access at, at some point to the malware when they've essentially had to hire outside consultants to help them dig into it, uh, talk to their auditors, and, and to investigate what, what happened. So uh, I do think it, w- it made sense to respond, although I, I, I very much agree with Dimitri that um, the response was was measured. It was predictable in terms of what the administration did, and and it certainly doesn't it doesn't do much to change or disrupt our our relationship with the with the Russian government. Turning to to the law enforcement operation in response to the Hafnium compromise, essentially what the government did is, uh, and this is the Department of Justice in particular, and and, and the FBI, they used a search and seizure warrant to allow the FBI to access malware that was left by the Hafnium hackers on servers located in the United States and to issue a command to copy and and subsequently delete the malware from those servers. And that's not an unprecedented action by the U.S. government. Certainly, there have been these types of actions before to disrupt botnets in particular, but this is the first time that the U.S. government has essentially affirmatively gone in to take out malware from downstream 
victim systems by accessing, by taking proactive action to access those systems. And help me out. Where does the authority to do that come from? When you go into court and get a search warrant, the premise is that you're collecting information to investigate criminal activity. You don't get a search warrant to go in, search the premises and fix the door or to go in and uh, search uh, physical premises and then repair whatever damage the criminals might have done. Where does the authority to fix stuff come from in the context of getting a, ser- a criminal search warrant? So, Ben, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's led to some amount of confusion among, among folks who are looking at this operation because you're right. This wasn't a this wasn't a warrant that was designed to obtain evidence. You know, the 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 government already knows what these web shells can do. I am I am very confident and had obtained copies of them well before executing the search warrant. But the government's authority to get a warrant is not just to uh, obtain new evidence to investigate crime. It is a search and seizure warrant under Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And the purpose of those search and seizure warrants is both to obtain evidence, but also uh, in some cases to seize the instrumentality of, uh, of the crime. In this case, what the Department of Justice did is essentially they seized the malware that was being used by the Hafnium hackers to obtain unauthorized access to to victim computers, in the same way that uh, the government might seize the uh, drugs that it obtains out of a drug bust, or the the same way that it might seize a safety deposit box at a bank. So, Dimitri, does this operation? It, it obviously satisfies the component of your concern that we discussed, which was that these computers all over the world are still subject to, you know, instructions from the Chinese military. It does not satisfy the retributive component designed to send a message to the Chinese. How do you react to this as a way of dealing with this sort of problem? Well, I would say it it satisfies the corrective action only partially. One, um, of course, the action that the FBI took only was done within the United States. Um, That's what the search order allowed them to do. So you still have compromised machines all over the world, perhaps less of of an impact to to the interest of the United States here. But from a global perspective, uh, you certainly still have uh, Chinese inflicting quite a bit of damage on many multinational companies, many, uh, of course, companies and individuals overseas. Uh, I, I would still like the, the idea of pressuring the Chinese to remove the servers, the web shells uh, from, from other places where they have not yet been removed. And uh, it was not clear to me that they were able to remove the web shells uh, from every single system, even within the United States. They only talked about a few hundred that they were able to remove. In part, that may be due to the fact that perhaps uh, some other web shells were password protected with random passwords and the FBI wasn't able to access them as easily. But nevertheless, um, I, I do think that uh, we need to send a very strong message to the Chinese that this behavior crosses a red line. The Chinese in general have been fairly good at uh, limiting 
damage um, out of the four major geopolitical adversaries we face, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. The Chinese are the only ones that have not engaged in any major destructive activity in cyber in the past. So um, I do think that we need to send a clear message that this is not the type of behavior that we're going to tolerate from them and that there will be severe consequences to the Chinese individuals involved in this operation, contractors, and perhaps intelligence officers. So I would like to see sanctions uh, placed on on any company that's been involved in this operation, any researcher that's been involved as well. There are some speculation that perhaps you have some security researchers in China that have um, helped the government uh, unveil the fact that the Microsoft is going to patch these vulnerabilities. And that's what triggered such a broad sweeping action on the part of of these actors to compromise everyone because they're afraid that their access would be closed uh, via patch quickly. And uh, I would also like to see some expulsions. The U.S. government did throw out a number of Russian diplomats in in response to to SolarWinds and and their other actions. And I think the same is appropriate for Ministry of State Security operatives that are here from China. And and by the way, just to go back to what Alex has said previously, I'm not opposed to responding in some way to SolarWinds because even though I, I do treat it as an espionage operation, it does not mean that we pat people on the back and say, good job when we catch spies. Of course, we still object uh, furiously to violations of our sovereignty and, and our criminal law, and we arrest people. We may throw out diplomats and, and spies. We may do demarches. So all of that, I think, was completely acceptable. I think escalating it to sanctions was where um, we, we took an unprecedented step in response to espionage, as far as I can tell, and that probably was not helpful. So, Alex, I want to get to the area where you guys have a little bit of disagreement, but I want to isolate the areas of disagreement first. Do you agree with Dimitri that this is a useful remedial step for inside the U.S. only and it shouldn't be exhaustive with respect to how the United States responds to uh, the Hafnium hacks? Absolutely. I don't expect that this law enforcement response is is the last of what we'll see from from the U.S. government on on this. And indeed, they were even, as as you parse the press statement and and court documents, they were even careful not to attribute the hafnium activity within what they said publicly about this law enforcement operation. I expect some of those deterrent actions to to be forthcoming, uh, they I, I suspect they just weren't ready for a coordinated rollout on on all of those things. And I do think more broadly, there needs to be a a mix of government response that includes both actions to deter this kind of behavior and to raise the costs of it so that state actors and others don't engage in this type of conduct to to begin with. But then. Um, on the flip side, I, I do think it's valuable for the U.S. government to also be involved on the remediation and on the containment and eradication of these sweeping hacking campaigns when when they do occur. So I, I do think the law enforcement operation uh, was incredibly valuable, and I expect we'll see more on in, in terms of deterrence as well. So one of the things that's to me, a little bit confusing about the the use of the law enforcement authorities is, you know, we have this sort of ongoing debate about the role of law enforcement in 
in cybersecurity, right? In which, broadly speaking, one side of the debate says, you know, naming and shaming and through indictments is a a strong strategy and we should do more of it. And the other side kind of waves impatiently and says, if you don't have any prospect of getting control over defendants, these are basically just grand jury press releases. They don't actually serve a very useful function. This is a law enforcement action that is, of course, not about an arrest, uh, though there may be uh, indictments forthcoming in connection with it. It's actually a law enforcement option that is remedial with respect to the damage done. And I'm curious whether you see that as a sort of underexploited area of the law enforcement approach, or is this a an area where it has application in a narrow set of contexts, but we shouldn't see it as a sort of harbinger of of things to come in the way law enforcement authorities will be deployed in the future. You, you know, I think, Ben, uh, you have seen the FBI being fairly aggressive um, in taking action to mitigate botnets going back uh, over, over a decade now. And I've always been a huge supporter of them also taking aggressive action against nation states. In fact, uh, it's often much easier to go after nation state infrastructure that is used for malicious action from a technical perspective because uh, it's typically much more, much less resilient against those types of takedown actions than the criminal groups who have invented uh, all sorts of uh, sophisticated capabilities like peer-to-peer botnets to decentralize their operations and make them less vulnerable to, to these takedowns. In nation-state operations, you really have not seen that level of sophistication, and, and it presents a unique opportunity for the government to take aggressive actions to uh, make it harder for them to conduct those operations, and when they do conduct them, to clean up sort of victim systems and networks in an automated fashion, um, such as what they did here. So I, I'm very encouraged by this action. Uh, Alex can probably speak more to this, but my understanding is that the law that was passed a number of years ago, Rule 41, really made it much easier for them to get a search warrant in one district and and then use it all over the country without having to go district by district to get court orders. Hopefully, it's 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 a it's a sign of much more aggressive FBI um, that's willing to take action on nation state operations. Hopefully working jointly with the private sector. And and by the way, when you think about nation-state offensive operations, oftentimes the hardest thing for them to to do is really to procure infrastructure. If you think about what's involved in procuring infrastructure for long-term nation-state operations, you may have to set up fake identities, shell companies, bank accounts, credit card numbers, procure bitcoins. And that's the sort of thing that if you in a comprehensive way, go after, you, you make it so much harder for them to conduct these, um, these sorts of attacks. I, I agree with, with all that. And let me, let me add a few, a few thoughts. So first, I do think that this operation is, is a harbinger of, of what's to come in terms of, of more operations like it. And, and exactly as Dimitri said, this operation is not unprecedented. The, the Department of Justice has undertaken any number of botnet takedowns over the past decade. I do think there's this shows that they're being more aggressive in their approach and, and what they're willing to do with these types of operations, but that is incremental in, in kind. I'll, I'll also say that 
the U.S. is not the only one who is conducting these types of operations. Earlier this year, the Emotet botnet was was taken down as part of a joint operation between uh, European law enforcement entities and, and U.S. law enforcement entities. And for the Emotet botnet, uh, the disruption involved very similar activity to go into the systems of victims to access the malware and to essentially trigger a kill switch that tells the malware to delete itself. Now, that step was was taken by uh, European law enforcement rather than U.S. law enforcement, but you're seeing these types of disruption op- operations where in widespread deployments of malware that law enforcement is taking proactive steps to to essentially protect victims. My My second thought on this is that it is consistent with what the Department of Justice and, and the broader U.S. government has has said about what the U.S. government's role should be in responding to sophisticated state actor activity. Um, this is not a level playing field. And the private sector has been told, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't feel like you have to go at it alone against these sophisticated actors. These types of operations that um, that have a remedial effect to, to protect victims, I think, complement the, the deterrent actions that the U.S. government is taking. And the, the third point on that, too, is it's not just these disruption op- operations that, that fit in, in, in this bucket. I think in, in addition to the deterrent actions like sanctions and criminal charges and diplomatic demarches and, and uh, the expulsion of diplomats, the other things that the government should be doing more of is the exposure of operations. Cyber Command, uh, DHS, and, and other federal partners have gotten better at essentially putting out reports and samples of malware that that foreign adversaries are are using to essentially expose and, and burn their infrastructure. I, I see this a, a bit as the equivalent of a vaccine in the cyber context, where you are giving the private sector the tools to be able to spot the state-sponsored activity and to disrupt it in their networks. So I, I think those types of uh, of steps are really valuable in this context. And then part of it too is is the defend forward approach that that Cyber Command has taken, where there may be actions that um, that we're not aware of and that we're not seeing to to take proactive action to disrupt the the infrastructure that that these actors are using, not just to you know to expose it. Dimitri mentioned the Rule Forty One change, which is a matter that you know, has gotten some discussion on lawfare back when it was in play. How significant was the change to the government's ability to conduct this operation? Or could it have done this under old Rule 41 as well? The the government definitely could have taken the same operation under the old Rule 41 as, as well. Essentially, uh, Rule 41, first of all, just as, by way of background, it is one of the basic rules of criminal procedure uh, that authorizes the government to obtain a search and seizure warrant. That authority has existed uh, for a long time. What the changes that that were approved in, in at the end of 2016 did is for computer hacking cases, certain computer hacking cases, it allows the government to get one warrant from one judge in order to 
conduct a search or a seizure across computer systems across the entire United States. Previous to the rule change, you would have to go to every district and get a search warrant for the computers in in that district. And that potentially would have meant going to 94 different courts if if there were systems in in every uh, district of, of the United States. So this makes it easier and allows them to do it with one order, but it's not it's not that the operation couldn't have been done before then. And, and there are examples of disruption operations of, of botnets that, that predate that rule change, like the, the core flood botnet. All right. So I want to turn to the area where you guys seem to disagree, which is the degree to which the uh, solar winds merits a similar response or to to the one that we're talking about in the hafnium context and i i want to figure out how far apart you guys actually are on this because alex you start by saying well i agree that the hafnium attacks are of a more norm shattering quality and Dimitri, you say, well, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be no response to solar wind. So I can't tell if you're saying the same thing, but emphasizing different aspects of it or actually saying something different. So I want to try to explore that by returning to the point that Dimitri made at the beginning, which is that he regards the response to solar winds as somewhat confused and not very useful in the message that it is sending. Uh, first of all, Dimitri, is why don't you articulate why you feel that way? And then, Alex, why don't you articulate whether you are more satisfied than Dimitri is with the response that the United States has had to solar winds? So, first of all, setting solar winds aside, In general, I think it's a good idea to think about the goals of your operation. What are you trying to accomplish before you do it? In this particular case, I presume that the goal is not just uh, to show to domestic audience that we're being, quote unquote, strong on Russia, but to actually try to influence Russian behavior in some form or fashion. If that was indeed the goal, then I think it was was a complete failure because, one, the muddled message, as I mentioned, that is, it wasn't just, of course, for solar winds. It was for a whole slew of activities, such as election interference, which to me seemed pretty incredulous, given that the Russians uh, did very, very limited election interference in 2020 compared to what they had done in 2016. Uh, it was for Crimea. It was for targeting dissidents. It, it was for a whole slew of things that we don't like about Russia. And of course, if, if you're going to try to um, send a message to Putin that we just strongly, strongly disagree with something you did. You don't want to send a model message. You want to be very, very clear cut and and focus on one or two things that you may actually want to get a change in behavior. In. And and then uh, the second part, of course, is the action that we did take, which was uh, very limited sanctions, sanctions on intelligence services that uh, in some cases have already been sanctions, like the GRU and the FSB. We've added sanctions on the SVR not going to impact the operation in, in any fashion, I don't believe. Expansion on, on sanctions of primary sovereign debt in Russia. Uh, primary sovereign debt has already been sanctioned under the Trump administration in 2019. Those sanctions were in U.S. dollars. This one was expanded to, to ruble-denominated denom- debt as well. But the key thing is that most of the Russian primary debt is bought by Russian banks, not U.S. institutions, um, which... Um, 
are um, covered by the sanctions, so it would have no effect. If we actually wanted to have an effect, it would cover all institutions globally, sort of Iran-style sanctions, and uh, cover secondary debt. That would, of course, be highly, highly escalatory and would have a significant impact on the Russian economy. We chose not to do that. Uh, or you would perhaps target the oil industry, maybe even Nordstrom 2 pipeline to Germany. Uh, we chose not to do that either. So it was very symbolic gesture that in the end, I think, was interpreted by the Kremlin as very weak. And, and I, I think to the, to the extent that there was a goal, it was probably more of a, uh, a domestic uh, political message that, than it was a message to Russia. Alex, how much of that do you disagree with? Well, I, I, I would agree with, with Dimitri's overall assessment that this wasn't a particularly robust response. It, it didn't have that many teeth. And, and I think that's reflected in what the president said in, in the announcement of, of the sanctions and, and the other responses, which is that the administration felt like they needed to take action to, to respond to malicious activities, but that they were focused on the future and on having a predictable diplomatic engagement with with the Russian government. And there's no doubt that there was a lot more that could have been added to this sanctions package, things like Nord Stream 2 uh, sanctions or additional sanctions on Russian oligarchs. It does seem like the sovereign debt sanctions may have uh, some teeth, but uh, it remains to be seen to what extent this response really does have a meaningful impact on on the way the, the Russian government responds. From, from my perspective, what is important in the way that the administration went about responding to, to SolarWinds is that they're starting to lay out a framework for differentiating the SolarWinds hacking campaign from, from ordinary espionage that, you know, certainly it's, it's illegal, but that, that nation states at least don't retaliate against. And, and what you see here is the administration starting to say that cyber espionage, if it is of a type that impacts thousands of private sector organizations and, and creates public safety concerns and requires private sector victims to, to spend millions of dollars to, to mitigate, that is not legitimate statecraft activity. And, and what I would hope to see is that uh, as we respond to more operations from, from the Russian government or elsewhere, that that kind of norm be fleshed out so that there is a better sense of, of what is acceptable statecraft versus not. Do you disagree with, with Dmitry that the Russians are unlikely to have taken that message from this action because it's mixed with so many other things? You know, I, I agree that it was mixed uh, in terms of what, what the response uh, was to, but that's in part because what, what the administration did here is establish a new executive order that allows them to go after a variety of different activities that the administration has said pose a national security and foreign policy uh, risk to, to the United States. And the fact that they mention all of those different things in a way is is valuable to the administration because it will allow them to go after those different activities in the future using the new authority that they that they created with this this executive order. It was a muddled response, but in that there were all of these things put together, but there was also no doubt within the 
entities that were sanctioned, that some entities were sanctioned for their involvement in malicious cyber activities, in, including the, the solar winds compromise. But I, I you know, it, it's also interesting that they didn't single out the solar winds compromise. They they mentioned a variety of uh, malicious cyber activities. So certainly they're not they're not. This was not a laser focused on on the solar winds compromise. I, I think that if if the precedent that we want to set is that um, uh, it is unacceptable to use supply chain hacks. Uh, or exploit supply chain vulnerabilities for espionage, that, then I think that the U.S. intelligence community would not be very happy with that precedent. Of course, we have executed supply chain hacks before. You know, one famous example is the crypto EG hardware equipment that uh, where CIA has allegedly bought this um, company in Switzerland that manufactured cryptographic equipments and jointly with the NSA and the German intelligence services have introduced backdoors into that equipment to weaken security and, and encryption. Of those machines, of course, um, operations that have been alleged to have been conducted by U.S. governments have inflicted uh, costs on innocent bystanders in the past as well. You know, an operation like Stuxnet comes to mind that escaped uh, from its original target, the, the Natanz plant in Iran, and, and compromised millions of machines around the world. Didn't do much damage to them, but nevertheless, they had malware in them. And, and if the, the precedent is that simply the act of cleaning up the malware is, is expensive and unacceptable, then that was a violation of the norm as well. If you are to believe the reports that the United States, along with Israel, was responsible for that operation. So it just seems like a, a very tricky precedent to set that, you know, it's okay to do espionage, but doing it in this particular way is unacceptable. And by the way, there's a whole slew of other actors that, that have been doing supply chain hacks in the past, including some of our allies and, and some of our adversaries like China, has executed a variety of uh, supply chain hacks in, in, on previous occasions. So we have so far not gone after them for that. We're doing uh, so very selectively in this case. We are going to leave it there. Dmitry Alperovich, Alex Iftemi, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet us, share us on Facebook, upvote us on Reddit, pin us on Pinterest, and share us on all the social media sites we haven't heard of make TikTok videos about us. Leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. 